Welcome back, everyone, to episode number two of TMC News. My name is Sid Sudhir, and today I'm joined by Andy Thompson. No Zaki today, but he will be back with us next time. Uh, don't worry, though, even though it's still two of us, we got plenty to talk about. And we're going to start off with what I think is a pretty interesting piece of news in the automotive world. It's the Bugatti Rimac joint venture. Um, now, this is something that's definitely, I, I don't want to say blindsided me, but I was, I was kind of perplexed or had a lot of questions about it. But thankfully, we have Andy who has the inside scoop, shall we say, on the situation. He was able to get some details. So, Andy, what do you have to share with us? Well, the first thing uh, I want to talk about is just the, the name of the joint venture, because it did blindside a lot of the industry. I personally think it makes sense, and I'll get into why I think it makes sense. But um, the new name is going to be called uh, Bugatti Rimac officially, and the face of it is going to be Rimac's founder, um, Mate. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. His name is Mate Rimac. I think it's Mate. Um, Mate, whatever, however you yeah. pronounce it. Um, it says Rimac will hold a 55% share in the joint venture, and also Porsche is going to be involved. Yeah, I don't know if you knew about that. Uh, they'll have a 45% share, and they'll have a 25% share, additionally, a 24% share directly in Rimac, not the joint venture, the company itself. And um, it said, the press release says, combining the genes of two strong brands, Bugatti Rimac will form an attractive company for both customers and employees. And I kind of see where they're going with this, because if you think about it, Rimac, like they had some problems with the concept one. Like it was, it, they had some, like it wasn't an instantly well-developed car. You had the issues with Hammond that kind of raised like concerns about the brand. Like it catches fire super easily, but you know, the, the C2, which now they renamed the Nevera, they've come a long way with that one. Um, zero to 60 has proven to be under two seconds and they've kind of taken the electric technology a long way. And so you combine like proven electric technology like is make, it'll make a car insanely fast. And then you add in Bugatti, who's got the Chiron base. And even though they didn't homologate it for buyers, you've the Chiron SS300 that went above 300 miles an hour. You combine that kind of knowledge base they've had from research and development on the Veyron and Chiron. And then you add in Rimax, like electric technology. For the future, that makes sense because it's two giants who are really good at one thing, combining to make like really insane cars. Because you remember like that bleed concept that Bugatti came out with last year. And they were like, it's going to have all these insane figures, but they couldn't prove any of them. I think, and this is something not a lot of people have talked about, I think that enables them to make a car like the Bleed, because realistically, to have acceleration that fast, it has to be electric. Like, there's no combustion engine that can get off the line the way the Bleed would need to. You add in Rimac, who can make a car go friggin' sub 2 to 60. When does that ever happen? Like, it's never happened before. I think it's going to be very exciting what comes out of there. And also, both brands seem like they're really excited about it, like, because they're posting about it everywhere. And then... So I guess, what do you kind of think of that? Like that you've got two brands who like have one thing they focus on and then they kind of bring their expertise to each other, like make some insane like models on the line. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm really interested about too is that Mate Rimac, like this new joint venture Bugatti Rimac, he's still going to be the CEO. He's still going to be the one who kind of heads all of this, you know, new, these new projects. Because you would think that a company like Bugatti, you know, like parent company Volkswagen, really well-established brand you would kind of think that they would tell Rimac hey we want to do this on our terms but like you were saying it seems like they're really enthusiastic about it it seems like there's a lot of good feelings both ways and I think you raise a really interesting point with the belief because I guess like the first thing that popped into my head when I was thinking about this I was like what does that mean for like the successor to the Chiron but I I, I didn't really think about the belief and, you, and you're right because it's for, for Bugatti, I think that's a different style of car, right? And they're probably going to need a new set of eyes and engineers and 
and procedures for, for designing that car. So it's an interesting way to, or an interesting point that you raise. Yeah, and also I'm, I'm reading the release right now again, because there was so much stuff like to go through. I, I got an email about it uh, not too long ago. And um, it says, it says jointly developed Bugatti models are planned for the longer term. So short term, they're looking at like building a relationship. Right? It's like down the line, it's going to be like, you'll see brand specific models. It's like, don't like Rimac is not going to have their own version of this. Like Bugatti will do their own thing. And that's another thing that I think maybe leans towards a bleed because if they're going to do their own thing and just like, obviously like they'll, they'll, they'll work together a bunch. Like they're excited about the venture, but if they're going to be working by themselves a bunch, I feel like it makes sense that someone like the bleed would come out if you're going to have their technology, access to their technology, and then you can still go out and build your own models. You're not tied to having a new car come out from each company at the same time. Oh, okay. So, so you're saying that they are still going to release cars as Bugatti, as yes. Rimac, and then yes. it's just occasionally that they collaborate on a project. Yes. Like occasionally there will be like a Bugatti version and a Rimac version, essentially of the same car, but they'll be marketed to different people with different price points and maybe different power, but same engine. I don't, I don't know if that's going to work, not sure how to shake out, but it's exciting for sure. And now uh, talking to the uh, executive, I was able to talk with a guy, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's like Galley or something. I talked with a, the head of I gotta see his position last second. Um, his position is the. Oh, come on, of course, this one's gonna be slow now. Okay, his name's Luigi Galli. He does something like the the per saying, like the oh, it's Maison per saying, the classic uh, division of Bugatti. And one other thing that he was excited about personally is now working with Rimac. Um, it kind of frees up Bugatti to have more resources to be able to uh, maintain like existing Veyrons and Chirons and also like even the classics of like the 20th century, like the EV110 and the cars that built Bugatti up to where they are now. He said it enables them to have more freedom because they can focus like now that they have like other eyes on new products, they'll have more resources to devote to like making the existing experience like more exciting for customers. Like you can give them like, I don't want to say more incentive, like you can give them more attention. Like if a Veyron has been driven a bunch of miles, like needs a major service or it needs to come to France or something, they have more resources to be able to do that. So I think that's part of what they mean too. Like it provides an exciting environment for not only new owners who like are going to own these joint venture cars, but also uh, past owners who, who like want a better experience. Like obviously buying a Bugatti, there's like a, there's a big name associated with that. They kind of made a name for themselves. And so I think it's exciting all around it. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the first uh, result of this because up in the official uh, formation of this partnership is going to be, I think it's Q4 of this year. So there's still a couple months for like the, everything's officially signed, but they've announced it now and they do intend to go through with it. So I, I'm excited for it. And I'm curious when the first one of the models is going to launch. You know, that's, that's another really fair point to bring up because I think we all, when we, when it comes to Bugatti, when it comes to the Veyron, we all like to talk about the engineering, the technology, because I mean, you know, as we should, right? Because it's a, it's a supercar that, or not even supercar, a hypercar that can go in, in excess of 300 miles per hour. You know, Jeremy Clarkson calls Bugatti Veyron, you know, a Concorde moment. And, you know, that's all really impressive. But I guess if we look really at the Bugatti Veyron or the Chiron ownership, a lot of it is about, you know, what you're talking about, about that experience. Maybe a bit of showing off just the fact that it is, it is a superlative in the car world, right? So, I mean, it, to some people, it might sound kind of stupid that, hey, Bugatti wants to um, divert more men or women power to customer service. But, you know, it, it, it feels weird to call it practical terms, but you know, in, a, in a more real sense, that, that kind of makes sense why they would do that. I mean, another question that kind of runs through my head with this joint venture is because you, you see a lot of uh, other companies. I know last time we had the podcast, we talked about Lamborghini and how they're saying they're going to go fully electric, right? 
So when I, when I heard this new joint venture, I kind of thought that the same type of thing might be happening with Bugatti because I mean, even, even though you consider them, you know, they're they they have parent company VW again, considerable resources. You would think that by bringing on Rimac, they're kind of forcing each other to work together to say, Hey, Rimac provide us with this, you know, battery EV technology, which they already do for a lot of other companies, which is why I think Porsche already had a joint, uh, a little a, small equity yeah, holding in Rimac. So I think it was. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So even before this whole Rimac uh, Bugatti thing, Porsche was already involved with Rimac. So that's that's why I was really surprised when you said that they're still going to release cars separately, because I would have thought that, you know, if Bugatti's kind of feeling that they're being forced down this route that, okay, we need to start creating electric cars and maybe at some point only electric cars. I thought that would mean that every single, you know, car is now released as a Bugatti Rimac, not a Bugatti or a Rimac. Yeah, I think that's a valid point you bring up where it's like, it's interesting that then uh, VW's handmade almost have been forced where it's like, hey, we have to do this. Let's bring on Rimac because we have to. But I think it's more of like a mutual, like they wanted to do it. And I feel like this just like enables Bugatti to like get with the times because like obviously they have already with Volkswagen, like they've proven themselves with like the, the new ID4. Look, it looks amazing. That's doing well already. They've got other electric models coming out. You've got Audi with their e-tron. Like they have companies within the group that already have amazing technology, but I think they don't want to borrow from that. I think they want to be able to have technology that's already been developed for a hypercar. Because like, if you have to scale up like an, an e-tron engine, like maybe it makes four or 500 horsepower right now, you need to at least triple that if you want to put it in a Bugatti. Like you can't just have like a four or 500 horsepower engine powering one of those things. So you've got to, I think they were looking at their option and they were thinking, do we want to either develop, none of this is confirmed, but I'm just speculating myself. I think they were looking at other options. They're like, okay, we have a company in the group that's already got stake in Rimac. The introduction's been made because Porsche is now obviously part of Volkswagen. So I think they were kind of looking around. They were saying, well, if we can make this work naturally, then let's do it. And I think that ultimately they ended up going for it. And it brings Bugatti up to speed with electric technology because Europe is forcing everybody's hands right now. I don't know if you've seen like they're, they've got like, it's not even like they're recommending, like they've got bands by like 2030, 2035, and that's coming up. Like yeah. when you think about the development of a hypercar, like nine years in some cases, like that's not a lot of time. So I think they kind of like take some of the stress off VW to like make sure they can grandfather up some of the technology when you have an existing company that can make it go crazy. You know, that that's, uh, again, you're making a lot of fair points here. And I think especially that whole time aspect of it, because I think another thing that popped into my head as soon as I heard this, this agreement is like, is this Volkswagen not giving Bugatti a vote of confidence, right? Because you would think that a company like Bugatti, who's able to create these, you know, the, these these hypercars with massive, massive amounts of horsepower, torque, a lot of technological development, you would think that they would trust them to say, hey, go develop, you know, an electric hypercar. By the way, here's some extra help if you need it from, you know, from the other companies like Porsche and Audi. So at first I was just kind of like, you know, what what's the need for this? But now that you bring in time to the equation, you know, combine that with the regulations, that does make a lot of sense. I guess the only thing is kind of, well, I'm maybe unsure about right now is how Mate Rimac in particular feels about this. Because I thought I, my, my image of the company and its founder Mate Rimac in, you know, for a long time has kind of been one that they're forging their own path, doing their own thing. And you know, they're doing it so well that other companies are now asking for their help. But I never really thought they would be one to join forces, you know, per se with with another company. So that I'm I'm kind of interested to see again what Mate Ramax's role is gonna be in this because he's he's the CEO, he's the leader of this joint entity now. So 
I, I wonder if there's a, if there's going to be any clash between what Bugatti and Rimac might want to do in the future. Uh, one other thing I want to raise, and but then we can move on if you'd like, um, is that I kind of think like Rimac, like you didn't hear a lot about the concept one. Like they built seven or eight of them, you know, like like and that's that's all people wanted them to build. Like people were never concerned about like, hey, like we want to buy a bunch of these. But the, the Nevera, I've been seeing a lot of like even before Bugatti Rimac was announced, I saw a lot of attention going towards the Nevera, and I feel like Rimac's excited about this because they're able to scale themselves up by being able to work with somebody like Bugatti because. Bugatti can build 500 Chirons like that's enough but at the same time it's not whereas I don't know how many Neveras they're building but I'm pretty sure it's under 100 and I think this affords Remac the opportunity to be able to scale themselves up in addition to working with a company that they feel like they can provide benefit to and I think Bugatti can also provide benefit to them because I think in my mind the biggest benefit Bugatti provides to Remac is the ability to scale up because they've already had experience building like hundreds and hundreds of really fast cars whereas Rimac is a smaller company so they're giving their technology to a giant and the giant's helping out the smaller company scale up so I think that's how it works but I could be wrong and we'll see how it shakes out I mean yeah what you're what you're saying as a principle is true and if you look at it like a lot of more business oriented personalities will talk about how this electric car boom has provided an opportunity for new companies to enter the enter the scene right for the longest time there have been so many automobile startups that have never really been able to flourish but finally because this electric vehicle you know proposition it 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 provides such an open door i mean we see with american companies right tesla rivian uh lucid just to name a few that have you know maybe done a little bit better there's a there's a lot of people trying to get in on the game and like you're saying the i guess the problem is now is that there's too many people trying maybe and that it becomes a little bit harder to scale yourself so i guess in practical terms that does make a lot of sense my only question is why take it necessarily that far, right? I mean, there are a lot of companies that have business relationships, you know, um, within with the with each other, right? My question is, was it maybe was it really necessary to maybe make that much of a commitment? Only time will tell. And yeah, <laughs> as, as most of what we're saying is speculation right now, but it's still fun to speculate. So moving on to the next topic I got, and this one's a little bit of a fun one. So I, I visited Iceland recently, and and as we know, all the Scandinavian countries, they, they've kind of got it sorted out in terms of how do we set up our societies, right? And obviously, we did a lot of driving uh, on the trip. And one thing I noticed is kind of the speed traps they had. I, maybe this is a speed traps is a, is a misnomer. It's more kind of, it tells you what speed you're traveling at while you're driving by. Now, in the US, we have these, right? And obviously... You, you drive past and it tells you too slow, too fast, and it kind of gives you some alarming letters. But when you do it in Iceland, it gives you a smiley face. And, and I know it sounds a little bit stupid or maybe a little bit boring, but I thought that was really nice. And I thought that was way more effective than I think, well, anything else, right? A smiley face or a frowny face, I think that would affect me so much more as a driver than just say, tell me you're going too fast or like the speed blinking. I don't, I don't know what you think, Andy. <laughs> And yeah, I, I, you know, Iceland a, is a different kind of place than we have here. And I feel like in America, a smiley face or happy, like, I feel like that would make people laugh to an extent. Like you, you wouldn't have people taking it seriously. They'd be like, oh, I made the camera mad. Like you wouldn't have anybody like taking it seriously. Whereas I feel like in Iceland, the, I, I don't know if they have everything sorted up. They're definitely a more sophisticated country as most Scandinavian ones are. Because they're kind of like the, the, the big innovators. Like you think like Ikea, they make everything efficient over in Sweden. Like the whole region's got, got it figured out in that way. And I feel like that's, something that they've been able to progress to that we don't have, I feel like we don't have the maturity for that in America, truly. Cause like we, you look at us and we're like, 
we're out like mobbing and like BMWs going like 150 on the highway. And, like, we don't care if we piss off a camera or not. Like, it, you know, it's just a hundred bucks to us. Like in, in Iceland, maybe they do take speeding way more seriously, but I, I just think here, like, we'll be like, Oh, we made the camera mad. Let's go again. Like make a U-turn and go do it again. Like if it's midnight, they'll just have some fun. Like get, get an angry camera. Cause people don't care here. Like one of my mom's friends, like almost every week, he'll get a speeding ticket at the same camera in downtown Chicago and does not care. He'll just like send a check for hundred bucks and be like, all right, when's my next one going to be like, generally he doesn't care. And that's kind of the attitude we have towards speeding here. If you can, if you can afford to buy the car, you're going to speed in. You don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, to, to be fair, I do think that Iceland in general, uh, Scandinavian countries in general too, have a lot higher speeding tickets. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a more serious offense, I guess. But, you know, I, I would like to think that we live in a country where, you know, we can at least be affected by smiley faces. I, I know I would, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think, I think if it was like a main road, if it was like a place where, you know, you shouldn't drive too much like a jerk, I, I think I, w- I would like to see the smiley face. I, I understand some places, you know, I, I'm not, I'm guilty of it. We can all drive fast, especially when we're enjoying our car, but I, I don't know. I thought that the smiley face, it, it, it's worth trying at least I would think, because it, it can't be that much harder than like, blinking the the speed on the on the lcd a couple times you know <laughs> i mean if you're gonna put it in one place i will concede i feel like you should put it in neighborhoods because like yeah, if there's a neighborhood a lot of kids live in, you don't want to be going like 80 on a residential street you want to be going like a little a little slower and so maybe you have like buy a place where there's like a lot of kids on one street you put a smiley face camera but like you don't put one on the highway because people are just gonna ignore it. like you want to have a number because like, that like flash to get people's attention like a smiley face like people are just going to look at it as like another billboard at that point. If it's only a smiley face or not, like, you know, to see if a speed you're actually going, like you don't get a feel for how fast you're going. Cause you're just like knowing if like, cause anything five over is probably going to be unhappy with you. And people go like 10 miles an hour over and it's not a major offense. So I feel like you'd, you'd have to know the place to put them, but also set standards for how fast is unhappy. You know, you know, this, this brings like an interesting conversation because it's about like, how do you say like your conscience when you're driving right because i think the whole point in the first place right of having those type of signs like showing you your speed is just to develop some sort of conscience while you're driving right but it's like i think especially as like a car guy this 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 comes to me a lot right it's like what 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 do i feel is ethical like where is it okay for me to maybe be a little irresponsible versus other places where i should be responsible and and funnily enough i feel like when i first started driving i was like you know places like neighborhoods i'm going to be very responsible about driving or like very you know like i'll only speed on the highway or something like that whereas now i feel it's like maybe i've gotten a bit lazy and i'm okay with speeding in a lot more places so yeah i don't know maybe it's a pointless discussion to have but i just thought that was something interesting to bring up <laughs> i mean it's not a point of discussion there's a time and a place for it like if i'm in a neighborhood and a little kid's going across the ball i'm not gonna hit the of going across the street to get a ball i'm not gonna hit the child but let's say i'm on like a like a a nice wide open road in the cornfields like 11 o'clock at night nobody's around me i know there's no cops and i see a smiley camera i'm still gonna go like 100 miles an hour if i feel comfortable doing it like i'm, I'm gonna speed when it's safe well, safe in quotes to do so but if like there's a time and a place for it like like we said yeah okay so hopefully there are no cops listening to this podcast episode because otherwise me and andy are toast <laughs> um hey we didn't say when and where we just said it's possible man you know you know they're probably they can track us use some ip address or something probably not that hard so please if you're a cop don't come to my house uh, <laughs> all right moving We're on small podcast moving on yeah small podcast 
Okay, so moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about the new Ferrari 296 GTB. Now, I think there's, it's, it's kind of received mixed, mixed, uh, what do you say, like emotional receptions from, from car enthusiasts. And I think there's some people who really like it, some people who don't, some people who are ambivalent. So, and it's like, I mean, I know people would be like, Sid, that's like that for every car, but I think it's pretty much an equal mix and not enough so that it kind of, feels like the car's already passed but I want to talk a little bit about it because I was I was actually at the barn Miami checking out the old Dino I was literally sitting in the old Dino <laughs> when I got a notification on my phone saying that the 296 which is supposed to be like theoretically the new Dino that when that came out I mean I know that I know that Ferrari didn't go as as far as giving it the Dino nickname but at least I mean, maybe it makes me more comfortable to think that you know this is the new Dino so Andy, do you have, before, before I launch into what I have to say, do you have any like first reactions to the car? All right, the first thing I have to say is I will, I will agree, 818 horsepower for a car in that segment is impressive. Like the price point, I don't know the exact price, so the price point they're offering at for 800 horsepower, that, that is impressive. Like usually that's reserved for like six, $700,000 cars. It's less than half of that for that car. But oh my God, the the design direction Ferrari is going in, I do not like it. It, it it's it's a it's I don't even know how to describe the design. Like, it should be an exciting car, but it looks boring to me. Like like from a side, it looks like like a Maserati or like any other normal sports car. Like it, a Ferrari should give you like some sort of like I don't know. I feel like when you look at it, you should be feel like you're looking at like not art quite the way Pagani is, but you should be looking at something you feel effort's been put into. I mean, the technology, they've put a bunch of effort into. You can tell it's going to be a great driving car. But to look at it, 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 I don't get much. Like, I don't get excited looking at one. Like, if I saw one on the road, I, you wouldn't know it was that powerful. You just think it was, like, another, like, Maserati Alfa Romeo 4C level type car. And that's the problem I think that car has. Is, like, the buyers who know Ferrari, they'll know it's going to be a powerhouse. They're going to want to drive it. But people, like, who don't know cars as well as you and I do, they're not going to think it's anything special. I think that's the problem they've run into here. The front looks all right, but the side view, like, is not an, is that, I'm not saying it's ugly by any means, like, it, it's, it doesn't look as exciting as I feel like it should relative to the power it has, because it, it's going to be an exciting car to drive. I can't wait for the reviews and the sound videos to come in, but just from the, from the exterior, that's all I can judge right now. And it, I, I don't think it looks, even like compared to the SF90, it doesn't look amazing. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. So I, I think I have a slightly different view on this. So I, I would say that, like, generally, if we're talking about Ferrari design language, especially with the Roma and this, because those are, like, their last two releases, is it's, you're starting to see maybe some more simplified designs and, like, in terms of, like, you know, shapes and edges. And to be honest, that's something that I'm a fan of because I think a lot of modern cars can become a bit too angular, a bit too – there's a bit too much going on, right? So that, that's why I kind of like this simple approach. So if you look at the, you know, the 296 GTB, if you look at the side angles, if you look from the rear angles, it looks like a simply designed car. And those are the angles of the car that I really like. Now, the front of the car, I know they're kind of copying the SF90. There's a little bit of influence from the F8 Tributo. And to be honest, I didn't really like the, the styling of the F8. So I'm not sure if the front of the car is my favorite thing to look at. But I really do like at the end, um, or sorry not the end the how the rear of the car it, it to me it resembles kind of a dino if you look behind the the flat engine cover um they, they have rear buttresses extending from the cabin so I, I really like that i kind of like how it's like an homage to to the dino in in some ways and 
I kind of like, I think through the design, they've been able to portray somewhat of a character to me, which I personally like, because you know, I know you're saying right now you want it to be kind of an exciting car. As James May would say, give, it needs to give me the fizz, right? He says that. And uh, <laughs> um, so I can, well, I can where definitely- exactly understand. with the fizzing sensation beast said? We, we don't talk about that. That's, uh, <laughs> when I post this, I post it as a clean, not explicit in a podcast, but- um, like definitely nothing to edit out here there won't be anything to edit out <laughs> yeah i won't be able to edit this one out um but like this kind of brings me to maybe a larger point about like the character of ferrari versus maybe the character of lamborghini because it, when i think about lamborghini i kind of agree with you it needs to be something that just looks absolutely insane right and i think for the large part most lamborghini cars do just look like showstoppers right but i think the ferrari it's okay in my book at least if the ferrari looks a bit more restrained a bit more simple and elegant, right? So that's why the Roma, like the styling of that, I think that completely fits the build of what I want to see from Ferrari. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't completely displeased to see what I saw with the 296. Because again, if we get back to like the Dino, the spiritual successor, I like the idea of an elegant, free-flowing, light, small car. I mean, the power figures are not small, but the way in which you'll drive, I feel it's going to be a very balanced, smooth car. I've already looked into some of the vehicle dynamics with the aerodynamics, with the you know, um, actuators, with their new hybrid system. It looks like it's going to be, like we've talked about, a fun car to drive. And I think it's going to be a very balanced driving experience, which is what I want to see. But you know, if, if you want to go that route, yes, I do agree. Maybe it could be more exciting, but I also don't think that's necessarily its role, if that makes sense. I mean, I would, I would agree it's not necessarily its role, but then you go back to the Roma. That, that is, an ex- like, as a GT car, that is, ex- like, it, it's got a good design. Like, if they designed it to look a little bit more like that, while still being a Dino, I would like it. The, the, the thing that I have a problem with 296 is, especially with side profile, that doesn't scream for, like, Ferrari, you know what I mean? Like, I see elements of, like, a bunch of cars, like the C8, the Alfa Romeo 4C, even, like, the new Maserati MT20, which they claim there's no influence. I think it's BS, but I think <laughs> they claim there's nothing. Um, so it's just, like, it. the thing, of, like, it's got crazy power. It's, it, it doesn't look unique. And I feel like a Ferrari should, like, stand out as being a Ferrari. Like, you take the Ferrari badges off that thing, would, would you immediately think that was a Ferrari? Like, if you had no idea what it was. that That's what I'm getting across. It's, like, a, a Ferrari should be able to stand out. And for the power it has, I feel like it looks too generic. I'm not talking like it has to be Lamborghini Extreme. Just like it doesn't, in my mind, have the allure that an 800 horsepower Ferrari should. Like, because a 45A, like it had something to it. Obviously, as an aging platform, but so, something as exciting as that, I feel like you just could look a little less generic, is what I'm trying to say. Because even mm-hmm. the Roma looks more unique. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the question could be raised because technically, Ferrari, even though this is going to be introduced around the two hundred to three hundred thousand dollar mark, Ferrari have said that this is not a replacement for the FA Tributo. So I do wonder, in terms of like excitement or exotic car kind of uh, interest, you do wonder if maybe they they tried to reposition that car to maybe not like take away too many sales from the FA or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, I I don't think Ferrari would on uh, they would design an ugly car on purpose, would they? <laughs> I'm not saying it's ugly. It's like it doesn't look as unique as I think it could for the like again for the power it has. It's going to be a hoot to drive, but you're not going to be looking at anything that's insanely exciting. You like the Roma is. That's all I'm trying to say. Is like the it 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 looks. I don't want to say bland, but like it just it doesn't look enough like a Ferrari like unique like because they've always had like crazy like you go back to the 250. That was like a unique Ferrari shape, and that was more iconic ones. I feel like with this, they I don't know and. 
I don't even feel like they took enough inspiration from Adidas. Like, I feel like they, there could have been more of like a, I mean, I guess the side profile sort of looks like a Dino, but like, I, don't, I feel like from a side, at least they could have done more of like a retro look where like it looks more like a Dino if they're mm-hmm. trying to have it fill that spot, even if well, it's not got a Dino badge on it. Well, it's interesting that in the in the collective, you feel like this or in the aggregate, right? Because actually, if you look at a, a lot of very specific parts of the car, the, the Ferrari have taken a lot of design cues. I mean, I've already talked about the Dino with the rear buttresses, right? You know, right in front of the flat engine cover. But then if we talk about the uh, Ferrari 250 LM, another classic, you know, Ferrari, I guess you could call it supercar, hypercar. Um, I do see but, that. I'll give you that. But yeah, it, I mean, I just, just since the since the podcasters aren't seeing what we're seeing. Uh, like the 250 LM had these um, side air intakes that um, they've been, they're not exactly the same on the new 296 GTB, but uh, cu- quite similar. And then we already talked about, of course, um, its relationship in the front to the SF90 and a little bit of the FA Tributo. So, I mean, I, I guess maybe, maybe Andy doesn't feel like he's, he's seen a Ferrari, but I guess in technical terms, Ferrari has made an attempt to at least try to incorporate some other aspects of, you know, Ferraris of the past. I'm definitely very excited to see and more importantly hear one. Like I, w- I want to see if my opinion will change because the other thing I do want to say briefly is there is not a single manufacturer these days, even Lamborghini, that can take good press photos. Like every single press picture, it's like they have awkward backgrounds. Like it looks like almost like a render. Like it, maybe it's just the pictures for me because like the SF90, I thought it was ugly in pictures and then personally, it looks amazing. I saw one last Sunday. First one, first time I've seen one outside of a dealership. It looks really good. So I'm hoping the 296 is like that, but Based on the pictures I've seen so far, I'm not a fan of the design, but I do like the fact that they're bringing that power down a different price point because that's like even better than a 720 relative to what you're going to get. And it's like, is it, am I right in saying it's like a hybrid or am I wrong? I don't remember. Yeah, no, it, it is a hybrid. <laughs> we probably should have started off by, by mentioning that. So, yes. Okay, so yeah, guy, it, it's a hybrid. If you've stuck around this long, the two, the, <laughs> you know, is it the 296 is the 818 horsepower hybrid? Hybrid. It's a, it's a V6, V6 hybrid. So it's, it's actually the first V6 since the original Dino or the last Dino that Ferrari's created, which is, which is why I keep banging on about the Dino and how it's a spiritual successor. But we I mean, called it one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they really, I, I think they should have. I think that would have been a cool thing to do. Um, but, you know, even, even though it's the first V6 that they've made in a while, it, it's taking, you know, Formula One technology, you know, they use V6s, hybrid V6s in Formula One. They've used a hybrid in the SF90. They've used it in the LaFerrari. So, and Andy is right by saying this is kind of the first time that they've brought it. I don't want to say on mass because it, it still is a supercar. It still is going to be, uh, you know, in, in limited numbers, but it's, it's starting to kind of trickle down the Ferrari range. And again, this is supposed to be, I think by the time you add a few options, you're probably going to be talking in the 300,000s, but still that's a hell of a lot uh, cheaper than you would probably get for an SF90 or a lot Ferrari. Um, and oh, 18, yeah. 800, 800, 818 horsepower. That's, that's nothing to turn your nose up at. You know, that's going to be one hell of a quick car. Yeah, that's more than the LaFerrari had before you put in the Kerr system. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's quite, it's quite exciting. Uh, so yeah, the next talking point I want to bring up is I saw an interesting article the other day um, talking about kind of the future of like Mitsubishi. Because I was like, uh, there's been a lot of demand for the new Outlander, like the new SUV they have. But they've also done a lot to piss off their fans because they've made... Um, Obviously, they used to have a sports car called the Eclipse, and they've also had like some other like like the the, the Lancer Evo is a great example. They now have, um, I forgot the exact model name of it, but they basically they have an an evolu- an evolution like there was the high power version of the Lancer, but it's now a crossover and it doesn't have like any crazy power. Like they've used the evolution name, 
in a crossover. That's pissed off some people. You've also got the Eclipse. Like that was a like a, a it was a Mitsubishi sports car. When you, if you didn't want a Lancer Evo, you bought an Eclipse. If you wanted a Mitsubishi, that is, and uh, which most people don't. And um, uh, so if you wanted like an, an Eclipse, you'd buy a sports car. Well, now the Eclipse is a crossover. It's called the Eclipse Cross, and it's a good looking car. But like Mitsubishi purists who still exist these days, um, they don't really like the way they're going and Mitsubishi hasn't done much to release new models either like the new Outlander is doing great but the Outlander Sport has barely been updated it's been out for 10 years and a lot of dealerships these days are even like behind the scenes they're kind of questioning the viability of the brand long term if they don't release new models and keep doing stuff to piss off their true fans and I just kind of want to get your perspective on do you think like Mitsubishi if they keep building good models because the new Outlander I will it's, it's a good car relative to the price point it's a good car if looking at that segment like for a nice SUV but do you think that they have a the resources because obviously they don't have they're not like a big Japanese company like they're they, they sell a lot of cars they don't sell like Honda Toyota Nissan levels do you think, A, they have the resources, and B, do you think that they still have the fan base besides the Outlander to be able to make new models and justify continuing to sell here? Because th- there's no talks of them leaving the market yet, but some of the dealerships are starting to question, and once the dealer network starts to question it, that's the first of the dominoes that might start to fall. So what do you think about, do they have like a chance to still bring themselves back if they make new models come out soon or exciting? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's almost it's an interesting and not interesting conversation to have, right? <laughs> because it's like oh, I feel right, like right. I feel like for the last like five to ten years, what well, Mitsubishi has been irrelevant in the car scene, right? I mean, it, it feels harsh to say, much, but it, it's 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 the truth. And like the only thing that you hear now and then is Evo this, Evo that, and and nowadays, like, I mean, maybe maybe Mitsubishi owning a Mitsubishi Evo might be nice for a singular private buyer right because people want them there's not a lot of them valuations go up in that sense right but Mitsubishi as a company doesn't seem to be doing really hot right now I mean like you're talking about the Outlander and to, to be fair I have I have experienced that car quite recently and um e- even though it's nothing that like a car enthusiast I think would be interested in it's it still is a good car um I drove like the hybrid version of that and you know it you know it, it had pickup you know enough to to overtake get into the next lane decent mileage decent space decent upholstery i mean i i also think that it's actually probably one of the better looking options out there from some angles not every angle but from some angles so it, it's kind of a, i think it's kind of a question of what does mitsubishi want to be now right because like you're saying that by taking the eclipse name the evo name and doing these you know sacrilegious things <laughs> electric suvs yeah it's kind yeah. of a mustang but getting back to mitsubishi yeah i mean it's 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 not going to please those who have been traditional Mitsubishi fans, which I don't really know if those people exist anymore. <laughs> I mean, they still drive Evos. You still see Evos. Uh, those people exist. They just don't drive new ones. And they're kind of being driven away that way. I yeah. Like. I mean, because I think from like a, this is maybe sad to say as a car enthusiast, but I think maybe from a practical standpoint, them doing that makes, maybe makes a little bit of sense, right? Because Okay, if you're selling uh, an Eclipse, if you're selling a Mitsubishi Evo, that's a very niche customer group, right? Let's say if we're taking the Evo, okay, that's the tuner community. More than that, it's probably the young tuner community. The amount, like, let's not remember the Evo was was more expensive than the Impreza. So that's probably going to be even, unless they find some miraculous way to make it a really cheap car, that's going to be an even smaller group and it just keeps going down and down, right? And then now since Mitsubishi's kind of fell out as a brand 
that's probably going to take a lot of PR work to kind of change their image. Maybe releasing a neat, uh, proper Evo does that in some part. But yeah, I think it's just kind of like maybe they've burnt a bridge and it's too hard to rebuild it in that sense. So, I mean, and if you think about like what's the modern rational car buyer, what did they want? You know, when I think about the Mitsubishi Outlander, I think that probably has everything that it, that you would want, right? I mean, yeah, from, from all the conventional check, you know, check boxes, it's, it, it hits everything you need. I guess then the real problem, I guess, for Mitsubishi kind of becomes how do you outperform with a Toyota, a Honda, a, a Subaru, you know, those type of brands? Because, I mean, for, from my perspective, when it comes to those cars, there's not a whole lot to distinguish each of them. I know like Subaru in particular, one thing that they like to advertise is safety and they're kind of known as that. And I think that kind of works for them. But, you know, Toyota, I don't, Honda, it, it, I think really in general, when it comes to those type of things, it's, it's all about preference in the case of you going to the dealership you know, you drive it and it's kind of what you like, because in reality, they're not going to be that different. They're all probably going to serve the purpose for what you want. But in terms of like, as an enthusiast brand, I, it feels sad to say, but I do think Mitsubishi is kind of past that point of being able to please those people. And I think their hands kind of been forced to have been able to do that because what the purists want is what the market doesn't. They want a fast, powerful exactly. sedan that's not electric. The market doesn't want gas right now. Like the, the, the people who are like the big buyers, like not like the, the, the car guys, like the people who the EPA is trying to appease to, they don't want a gas, a, a gas powered performance sedan. They want electric efficient SUVs. And I think Mitsubishi's hands already been forced in the purist market because they have to just to keep themselves alive, they have to make SUVs. And if they have to make the name sound more exciting, because evolution, like that sounds exciting, Eclipse sounds yeah. exciting. You want to bring those evocative names back. The problem is in doing so, you've pissed off your actual fan base who would buy you just by your name. Mm-hmm. And I think their hands kind of been forced so many ways. I feel like their only option, unless they do release a bunch of new models, is to put all of their R&D into the next Outlander to make it industry leading because they have the resource to it. It's not like you've driven it and been reasonably impressed with it. It's just a matter of they're going to have a lot. Like they have, they have a decision to make. Do they want to? In my opinion, they have a decision to make. Do they want to pursue like everything they've got new Outlander, like make it entry leading, or do they want to attempt to bring out some new models that make them relevant again, that are fun to drive, even if they're electric? Because you might bring the purists back that way if it was like a hatchback. Yeah, I mean, I, it comes down to, I, I guess, like the best case scenario is that the Outlander does really well, and then you know, Mitsubishi is able to accrue enough money, assets, what resources, what they need that they can finally start branching out again and doing those sort of things. Because I mean, generally when we talk about businesses and expanding, right, they first, they do one thing really well. And then, then they start kind of expanding, right? Like, even if we go back to RIMAC before, what did they start out with? They started out with battery technology. They started out with certain components. Then, you know, after a lot of hard work, they made one car, the concept one, did reasonably well. It was able to at least, you know, garner some attention to them. Then, you know, with the concept two, they've been much more thorough. It seems like they've done a much better job. And then finally, they've gotten to the point where now with Bugatti, maybe they, they scale themselves into, you know, into a really large company. So, I mean, it, feel, it feels kind of weird maybe to talk about that with Mitsubishi, who've been a well-established brand. But when you see someone kind of, you know, fall down like that, they do kind of need to rebuild the metaphorical blocks, right? They need to kind of put themselves back up. So, I mean, the Outlander seems like a decent car and let, I don't know, let's, Oh, let's hope that, that it does well enough that Mitsubishi can start think about doing those things again. And, you know, I don't think, you know, you're talking a little bit about like the gas versus electric. I, I think that, you know, if 
they can keep going with electric. That's fine because, you know, whether car enthusiasts like it or not, that's going to be their option in the future, right? So it's fine to continue down that path. But yeah, you would like to see them get into, you know, making some sports cars, making some sedans that maybe can, you know, maybe can appeal to the traditional tuner community. I don't know how well or that would that would work because yeah that obviously the tuner community a lot of it is based around having a having a combustion engine right but um i i think yeah i think they can probably do more to excite us but again that's probably not their main priority right now is it yeah all right so well moving on to the final topic i got is the lucid air um you know we're talking a lot about electric cars here's another one and in, in a lot of ways, it, Lucid is an interesting company to me. You know, their, their CEO and CTO is a man named Peter Rawlinson. Now, Peter has worked at Jaguar and Lotus, and he was the man in charge of creating the now famous uh, Model S. And so he and he's decided to kind of uh, pick up shop and move over to Lucid. And with the air, it's kind of been his brainchild. Um, well, first off, Andy, how much, how little or how much do you know about Lucid? I know it's reasonably well-priced. It's a very good-looking car. Like, I'm, I want to go check one out at that dealership in Oakbrook. I, I want to go see it soon when I, when I have the chance to. But that's all I know is it's, like, it's meant to be, like, mid, mid-level mid luxury. Like, it's supposed to compete with Tesla. It's – I'm not sure about the power. I'm not sure about the, how fast it'll be. I know it's not going to be any slouch because it's proven technology from the Model S, like you said. But I, it's a good-looking car, and I know it's priced reasonably well for the segment, and they just have, they're just have they just now getting the, infra, the dealer infrastructure where they can start to sell it, and it'll be interesting to see how it performs. But you seem to have more insight on it, so I'd love to hear more. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're t- touching on it a little bit. So Lucid is trying to, I don't want to say copy, but they are going to kind of do how what Tesla does with their dealership systems. It's like not really a dealership, but kind of is. So they're trying they're trying to do that, get you know work within the laws to do that. So as you said, um, there's one here kind of in the Chicagoland area in Oak Brook. It actually took over a Tesla store, funny yeah. enough. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, it used to be a Tesla, and now it's Lucid. Because okay, Tesla okay. moved out and went to Naperville, and now, uh, yes, they're there. Anyway. Okay, yeah. And so, well, Lucid, um, with the Air, they are, they're going to give you four trim levels. And so, well, the top level, I, I believe I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, it's called a Dream Edition. I'm, I'm 99% sure that's what it is. Um, so that one, it seems kind of unnecessary kind of question i was like where is this coming from so it's gonna start around one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, which is kind of porsche taycan territory and it's gonna have a little bit over 1000 horsepower so that's more it has more power than a bugatti veyron the original bugatti veyron which is i was i was very very surprised to see that and you know i mean obviously that's the top of the line model i i believe their base one which is called the pure has somewhere around 400 horsepower. Um, then they have two more. It goes 620 and then 800 horsepower. So, I mean, all oh, these I cars... get it. Like Lucid Dream, the top edition, like a Lucid Dream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess they're trying to be clever, just the same way Tesla are. But it's... It's, it's interesting because it, it does seem like if you go from the most basic model all the way up to the Dream Edition, there is quite a bit of difference. Because if we talk about the Pure, the most basic, it's rear-wheel drive, one motor, you know, around 400 horsepower, which honestly, I don't think that's like, that's not terrible in a, in a daily car. But then you go all the way up to 1,000 horsepower. And remember, this is like mostly the same chassis. I mean, everything cosmetically looks the same. It's the same car. I don't think someone, you know, on the road would really be able to tell the difference. But, you know, when you get to the 
the dream edition now you have you have three motors all-wheel drive thousand horsepower i don't remember the official zero to 60 time but it's it's under three seconds and so i i, I found myself a little confused because i was everything when i kind of look at lucid i don't know you know in the audience how many people have looked up pictures of this car but everything about it to me looks very you know about luxury about space about smoothness it, like it looks very much like that type of that's the type of image i got at least but then if you you take a thousand horsepower and that that seems like a complete paradox to me i mean i i did do a little bit of research into the company so uh lucid they're the official battery supplier for the formula e championship um, for those who don't know, that's the all-electric open-wheel racing um, series sanctioned by the FIA. And so, like Lucid, what they essentially did is how the Formula E championship used to work is that you would have to switch cars halfway through the race because there wasn't enough, um, you know, wasn't enough juice. And then Lucid, they kind of proposed the idea that hey, we can, we're 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 good enough that we can make a battery pack that will last you the entire race. And you know, Lucid has been providing the batteries, and yeah, it has been been mostly a success and they, they've been able to get a revenue stream out of that as well so i mean from that sense i understand that they kind of have the ambition maybe to uh to go into to be able to compete with porsche and audi and those type of people but to be honest as a car enthusiast i would rather they didn't because you know peter rollinson again their ceo and cto he's kind of gone on record saying i want to create the best electric car out there and again from a from a practical standpoint, yeah, that makes sense, right? We live in a world of superlatives. We live in a world where our, where our phone is able to do a million different things. So why shouldn't our car be able to do a bunch of different things also, right? But I, I just wish that, first of all, I think Lucid as a brand, that is going to be very, very difficult to compete with the likes of Porsche, Audi, Lamborghini in the future if they do when they do decide to go fully electric in 2024. Ferrari in the near future, I'm sure. Maserati, who are going to go electric with their MC20 at some point. So that just seems like an absolute minefield. And it's not like Lucid has been without struggle. They've had a lot of struggle to even come to this point where they're about ready to deliver their car. So I feel like they probably would have done a lot better, I think, if they'd gone into the niche. And personally, I would have liked to have seen them go into that luxury niche because I don't think that's something that's really been appealed to because we've seen a lot of people trying to prove how electric cars can be fast. But I want to see, you know, maybe some other other aspect of driving catered to. So that, that's kind of my thoughts on Lucid. I mean, again, a lot of this is speculation because Lucid, the Air is their first car. They've been in operation since 2007, and they've it's only now that they've kind of gotten around to releasing their new car. I think Peter Ronson, in large part, was kind of the driving factor between behind getting this car on the road. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think they kind of want to challenge Tesla, but it's it's only up to time to see what they're actually going to be able to do. <laughs> in a way they're aiming from what you i don't know much about the car i know the design looks good and it's decently priced i think based on what you're telling me i think the right one to go for is that second from the top trim level because it's not gonna have full thousand horsepower but it's gonna be luxurious and i think it's gonna be like a rolls royce like the rolls royce electric cars because you'll have a very luxurious product that like i, I was actually in phantom last night like that thing will go move it like it feels like you're moving pretty fast going to 60 just was electric so I think if you go for a second from top, we're not going to have to deal with the full thousand horsepower. It's going to be too rowdy. You'll have a very powerful car that will be smooth. Like you said, it's going to be representing smoothness. You're right. And so I think you'll have a very powerful, very luxurious car that competes with Tesla, but does different things. Like a Tesla, like there's stupid, like there's that iPad you can play with. You can make, <laughs> like, you can make the horn fart. You can do all that stupid stuff. 
But with the Lucid, I feel like it's probably more sophisticated, but have the same kind of technology. And I think they're, if they can successfully break the market, like they can get some customers who have a loyal enough fan base and they can get enough cars, in enough people's hands, they might be able to make it. I think Formula E seems to help now because if you can say you successfully made Formula E like a, a viable sport where you don't have to change cars every race, like because that's that had to have been annoying to do. I don't know when that switch was made. Yeah, I know how long you're doing that. I, yeah, I don't know how long I'm doing the batteries for, but like, if you can say that as a company, you've successfully turned an entire racing series on its head and made it actually work with your batteries, and now you're making a car out of those. Th- there's something there, and I think the fact that they can say that and they seem to have proven themselves enough to open a dealer network, it'll be interesting to see how they perform. I am, I'm excited to see my first one. No idea when that'll happen, but I do want to <laughs> see one at some point. I hope it does happen relatively soon. So I, I want to go on the record here and say that I do think that if Lucid are able to deliver on all everything that they've said they can, I think that it is going to be a better car than Tesla. Um, I know that from their end, they've tried to be a bit more daunting or daring with their with their design. And I don't like all of it, but I do appreciate what they've tried to do. Um, I mean, I was writing an article myself about this. And I also thought, like you were saying, I thought that second from the top, I think I'm right in saying, was it the... I think it was the Grand Touring. It's it's the second from the top spec. It comes around $87,500. I think that's probably the best compromise of all the different trim levels because, you know, $80, $87,000 still does seem a lot, but you're getting 800 horsepower, that which is much more than you get in a Porsche Taycan, and you're paying a lot less than a Porsche Taycan. And it's, yeah, this is supposed to be a spacious, luxurious car, which, I mean, I think for a, a good large majority of the audiences, they are going to like how it looks as well. I think I just kind of have a, a unique perspective on that. But I think all in all, Lucid is one that you definitely need to keep an eye on because, I mean, if everything goes well, which that's a big if, but, you know, if things kind of fall in place as they should, Lucid are looking like they're going to be another household name in the game of electric vehicles. And they're an American company too, so... That's something, that's another thing that we can appreciate here. But that's all the time we have right now. Andy, I don't know if you have any final thoughts to leave off on. No? All right. Well, thank you again for listening to this second episode. I really appreciate having you here. I really appreciate having Andy here. And again, hopefully Zaki will join us for the next episode. Really enjoyed having this chat today. So do make sure to check out the rest of our podcast. Check out like, our- Like, comment, subscribe. Yeah, I mean- Depending, I think subscribe, you can really only do it on Apple Podcasts. So yeah, support me in whatever way you can. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's all I have. Signing off. I'm Sid Sudhir. And I'm Andy Thompson. There we go. See you guys.